I want to invite you to Micah chapter 4. Uh, Micah 4. Uh, we're going to complete uh, this chapter today. So please do turn there and hear the word of God. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong uh, nations far away. And they shall beat their swans and into plowshares and their spears into running hooks. Nations shall lift up sword Excuse me, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of, of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall come Shall it come, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, you shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the, ha from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves for the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I'll make your horn iron, and I'll make your hoofs bronze, shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain in, uh, to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Let us pray. Lord, your word is set before us, We read it, and Lord, we desire to know its meaning and to apply it into our lives. We pray, Lord, that uh, your Spirit would give us understanding and enable us 
to assimilate this word into our spiritual beings in order that we would be uh, conformed to the likeness of your son. Enable us, Lord, to hear the voice of Christ, to seek Christ, and to fall at his feet in adoration. So do hear us, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we've continued to do a journey through this book, and uh, this is the third sermon from the fourth chapter. Uh, it began by pointing out to us how the nations or the Gentiles will flock into Zion, and then added that the Jews too would go to the same destination and a community of God's people would be assembled, would be gathered that way. That is verse 1 through verse 8. Now in verse 9, uh, he has a kind of a new section where he, he, he shows uh, Zion to be in anguish. Um, it's actually crying aloud. And so here, Prophet Micah clarifies the suffering, the suffering of Judah and the miseries of Zion. He shows that even if such distress will come upon God's people, yet the Lord God will remember his mercies and show his grace to them. Again, Micah has that pattern where he presents judgment, but never does he conclude without showing grace. Thus, the believers will be encouraged by his message of hope in affliction. Clearly, in every dark cloud, we are told, there is a what? A silver lining. Every dark cloud has a silver lining, and Micah shows that, demonstrates that. God will not always chide. He will restore the bones that he has broken and show his people that there is no one greater in steadfast love and mercy as our God. This is our God. In his, in his love, he disciplines his children. Obviously, for the moment, no discipline seems pleasant. It's always painful. But later, the Bible says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So let us delve into the text and see uh, and seek to understand its structure. This passage stretches from verse 9 all the way to chapter 5, verse 5, with three major segments. And each segment begins with now. You can see it there in verse 9, it's there in verse 11, it's there in chapter 5, verse 1. But each of the section that states God's judgment ends with words of comfort 
as it speaks of God's grace. In fact, it climaxes into the birth of our Lord there in verse 2, where Bethlehem is not little among the clans of Judah, because out of it shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And who is that other than Christ, Jesus the promised Messiah. So this is not a small, you know, uh, localized prophecy. This is a, a prophecy that, that has universal implications, and that's why we read it today. Uh, so chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, begins with questions upon questions. Chapter, uh, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Questions upon questions. So, these people were about to be exiled. You know that, uh, as I pointed out earlier in the earlier messages, Micah prophesied in Judah during the reigns of uh, uh, Jotham and Ahaz and, and Hezekiah, which is around the same time that Isaiah uh, was uh, prophesying. And uh, he was prophesying at a time of prosperity, but he denounced the, the wealthy who were oppressing the poor. But one of the things that he want very categorically is the impeding judgment. At this time, you know, the northern kingdom uh, fell uh, uh, during his ministry. So it was while Micah was prophesying that this kingdom fell. Um, but what is clear is that even in times of judgment, uh, there, is, there is hope. There is hope for the afflicted because God will not always chide. We read in Psalm 103 that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The reason why God's people ended up into exile in Babylon is because they had forgotten their king. So they are being asked here, is there no king in you? They had forgotten that not only did they have a, a God-instituted king, but the king of kings, the Lord of Lords, was in their midst. The great I am, Yahweh, the covenant maker, the covenant keeper, was there with them. And you notice that how constant Micah is in pointing out that the Lord that he's talking about is Yahweh. 
Whenever you see that capitalized word, that's talking about Jehovah. And he's saying that Yahweh was still their king and he was with them. Although he was, uh, although they were going to go through all that, he was not going to forget them or forsake them. It was them who had forsaken him and that's why now he was uh, setting them away into discipline for 70 years. They forgot their king who was in their midst as they cried aloud. So the Lord asked them, is there no king in you? He challenged them. Has your counselor perished that pain has seized you like a woman in labor? God recognizes the pain of childbirth and compared their anguish and affliction with a mother who remained in labor for too long. God's people remaining in that kind of a condition for a, a long period. So please, God's people, do not leave as if there is no king, for the Lord will redeem you. The Lord will redeem you. But meanwhile, there is discipline you must endure. You have to go through. The Lord never leaves nor forsakes his people. So even in affliction, his people must always learn to say, whatever my Lord, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But even when singing, it is well with my soul, it is fine to rise and drawn in pain. And so the Lord himself encourages the daughter of Zion to writhe and groan like a woman in labor. And why should they weep so bitterly? Because they shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. They shall go to Babylon. They shall go to Babylon is what is said there in verse 10. They shall be exiled. Think about that. Being told that you shall go to exile. This is the worst news one can receive. To be exiled is such an awful thing. Imagine living, living the comforts of your home and going to another country with nothing having to begin from the scratch, afresh with your children, with nothing to offer them. This could be completely overwhelming. But this is what God tells them. So what gives the confidence to sing, it is well with our souls, when, even when in, we are in such anguish. Why should God's children not hate the discipline of their father? What is there to be thankful about in pain? 
It's because what of what follows at the end of verse 10. There you shall be rescued. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. There is grace. Here is grace, the grace of God, that in the darkest hour, where they are being told that you shall go to Babylon, you shall dwell in the open country, you shall go out from the city, the Lord turns around and still promises deliverance. And it states most categorically that he will rescue them and redeem them from the hand of their enemies. Again, look at that passive redemption. It is not there you shall rescue yourselves. Who will re rescue you? It's Yahweh. It's Jehovah. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit intervening for, re for the redemption of God's children from their enemies. And who is the only redeemer of God's elect? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who will redeem his people from their enemies. And who are the enemies of God's children? It is sin. He will deliver you from your sins. That's what we saw. He will die. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. The one who will redeem you from your enemies. And who else is in that group of your enemies? It is Satan, that devil, the accuser of brethren. He will deliver you from your enemies. The world and the flesh will not stand in the way of deliverance by this only Redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will vanquish every enemy, even death itself. So when the Bible says that surely he will rescue you, he will redeem you, from the hand of your enemies. I know that prosperity preachers would get this text and mutilate it and say, you will be delivered from your poverty and from those uh, witchcraft uh, neighbors and all that, that kind of nonsense. That you will be delivered from the curses, from your generations, and all that. 
Yes, the only Redeemer of God's elect Lord Jesus Christ will definitely deliver you from the curse, the curse of the law, the curse inflicted upon our forefather Adam. And if he has delivered you from the curse, no other curse really can come, uh, can come upon you as God's child. All other curses are rendered useless. They are rendered powerless. If, he, if the Lord redeems you, if the Lord casts his love upon you and, and rescues you from all that danger, then you're really, completely, perfectly, absolutely, totally rescued and redeemed. Again, in talking about redemption, we know that our redemption from all our enemies are, is accomplished through the work of our Savior on the cross. Redemption was accomplished there at the cross of Calvary by Jesus Christ. And so, while this obviously had a double fulfillment with them coming out of Babylon after 70 years of captivity, yet this points to something bigger than the deliverance from Babylon. There is the grace of God. The Lord stating very, very categorically that he will rescue them and deliver them and redeem them from their enemies. God does not say again that he might rescue them. What does he say? He says that he shall. He shall. Rescue them. The Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. He shall do it. It is with finality. The finality of the sovereign God. The great I am. He is able to redeem completely. And if you were to take this, then again, to refer to God's own children being disciplined. Again, the Bible says, as I pointed out to you, that he will not always chide. The Lord will not remain in anger forever. No, he will not always deal with us as our sins deserve. He will not repay his children according to their iniquities. This is such a relief to know that the Lord God will show his mercy to his remnant children in the Babylonian exile. And he will show his mercy to his children living today. So we can see. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. 
Yes, even down to old age, he says, or oh, we sing, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall thy, their temples adorn, like lamps, they shall still in my bosom be born, the Lord says. Therefore, my dearest, in Christ, learn to lean upon the Lord. It is only the Lord Jesus who will not decide to your foes because he has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Even if all hell should endeavor to shake you, he will be with you and no one can shake him. And so you can say he will never no, never, never forsake. So, if you are in Jerusalem, in Zion that day, and you, are, you heard of the threat of God to chastise his own people, what should you, what should you have done? Because this does replay over and over again in our lives. When you go through trials and you know that you're going through the discipline of the Lord, what should be your response? What should you do? This is my encouragement to you. Leave as one who is under the shelter of the Most High. And he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You will ever say to the, to the Lord, my refuge in my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because God will deliver us from the snare of the fowler and the deadly pestilence. He promises to cover us with his pinions. And under his wings we shall find refuge when we go through the worst of trials. Because his faithfulness is great. And he is our shield and our buckler since we are his children. We are therefore... Not to fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by the day, nor the pestilence that, that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Because we have trusted in the Omnipotence One. And when He turns out to discipline us, we should still go to His bosom. We trust in the Lord our God. Mighty to save. He is our King. And if he would turn against us, we should still go back to him and tell him, our Lord, help us, help us, deliver us. And listen, that's what he did. In his wrath against our sinners, where do we find our deliverance but from him by his son? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
So like his disciples, when the Lord said, do you also want to go? What should be our response? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But notice that uh, the Lord does not mince his words in telling us that we have enemies. Verse 11 through 12 tells us that many are your enemies, but the Lord will deliver you from them all. I know the prosperity preacher will tell you that if you're a child of God, you have no enemies. And a child of God must not suffer. But what does God say? He says that you have enemies. He says now many nations are assembled, not for you, but against you. Saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. This is a second section, a new section beginning with a second now. The you is a reference to God's people in every inch, but more specifically those in Judah when Micah was writing. Verses 11 and 12 speaks about the many nations who were assembled against Judah and Jerusalem and who by extension, are against God and against God's people, wherever they are, whenever they live. These enemies are set on one thing, to defile Zion, to destroy God's children. And their eyes want to gaze upon the nakedness of Zion after it has been demolished and its foundations exposed. The enemies of God's people are many. They yearn for the destruction of the godly. They plot the downfall of God's people. They hope that you will abandon your faith and leave the path that leads to life and join up with them into the road that leads to destruction. They hope that God will forsake his own children and leave them to desecrate them. But they forget that God loves his children. They forget that God will deal with his children tightly. And even when he disciplines them, it is not to destroy them, it's to build them up. It's to purify them. Verse 12 is a contrast of the plans of men who are enemies of God's people and the plans that God has for these enemies and his children. For we read, but they do not know. They do not know. There is something that they do not know. And I hope we who are God's children will not miss out on understanding God's plans. They do not know the thoughts of the Yahweh. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. The world of unbelievers do not know the thoughts of God. They cannot. 
Their mind is hostile to God. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Isaiah 55, there is no mortal who can fathom God's thoughts or understand his plans, how less his enemies. God's ways are higher than our ways and our thoughts and no one should think that he can uncover what God has hidden or conceal what God has revealed. And what are the thoughts that God has for these enemies of his people? These enemies are soon going to be gathered like sheaves when they gather against God's children. So we've already been told that they, they, they gather the nations, the many nations are assembled against you there in verse 11. But really, who is gathering them? Do you notice that? That language of gathering in verse 11 versus, the versus what is there in verse 12. So many nations are assembled against God's children. But why are they assembled? Now, they think that they are gathered to destroy God's children, but really it is God gathering them like sheaves to deal with them. It's very amazing because you see, they do not understand his plan. They do not know that God is gathering them as sheaves to the threshing floor. As far as they are concerned, they know what they are doing. They, they plot, they, they have everything worked out so that uh, they can deal with God's children in their cruelty. You know, um, there was a time when God's enemies were gathered in Jerusalem and they were assembled to crucify Jesus. But what were they doing? What were they doing? Do you know? Yes? As they gathered to do what they wanted to do, what were they uh, going to execute? Look at uh, Acts chapter 4. We're told in verse 27, for truly in this city of Zion, the same place, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Wait, to do what? 
verse 28. To do whatever your hand, that is, this is God, your hand, O Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. By the way, earlier on, Peter had already, already spoken about this in chapter 2, verse 23. We are told that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you enemies of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, they gathered, but they were gathered by the Lord as they thought that they were going to do what they wanted, wanted to do, but really they were going only to accomplish the plan of God. Oh, many are the times when God's enemies forget that the Lord Jehovah reigns. His throne is built on high. The thunders of his heart keep the wide world in awe. His wrath and justice stand to guard his holy law. And where his love resolves to bless, his truth confirms and seals the grace. Therefore God will judge the nations and destroy their ways and bless his children, showering them with love. Amen. And so then, what should be our response? We who are God's children. What does God tell us to do? Thirdly, arise. Arise, he says. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, children of God, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of, of old, from ancient of days. Arise and devote the wealth of your enemies to the Lord. Arise. Don't continue to sleep. Don't continue to groan in pain. Don't continue to rise and groan like a woman in labor. Rise up. Arise. This should be the response of God's children in light of not just the threat of their enemies, but also in light of the blessings of God upon them. Zion, as God's daughter, is called upon to arise and thresh. What are they threshing? 
Zion is seen as an unassailable ox, treading out the grain on a threshing floor. Zion before their enemies is a weakling, but before God, it is a well-beloved daughter who can thresh the enemies that God has gathered as sheaves to the threshing floor. So when God intervenes for his children, he gives them the strength they need to do what God, God wants them to do. The daughter of Zion becomes an ox that is threshing out of the grain. God not only sees them, children of Zion, as his beloved daughter, but he also empowered them greatly. They are both his, his beloved, but he also gives them the strength. He makes them horns of iron and makes their hoofs bronze to be able to thresh their enemies. This is what God does for his people. Many of us would want to, to hear and see the horsemen on fire fighting our battles. Isn't it? Like, like, like uh, uh, Elisha and Elijah. We would want to, uh, to be like Moses where the Lord will send his plagues and we will not have to deal, to contend with our enemies. That's what we would love, isn't it? We all yearn for those kind of miracles where we don't have to do anything. We just wake up one day and all our enemies have been vanquished. But that's not the way of sanctification. What's a way of sanctification? It's that God is not going to rain fire and brimstone from heaven to destroy our enemies. Rather, he is going to give us the courage, the boldness, the strength, the skill, the equipment to defeat our enemies. That's how it's going to work. He does, he does not defeat the enemies for us without us. He defeats them for us as we fight. God calls us to fight the good fight of faith, doesn't he? He calls us to take our position and fight. And then he will give us all the necessary resources and incentives to gain the victory. So our fight with sin is real. And so we mortify the deeds of the flesh. We may sustain injuries in the battle, but we are sure that we will come back home alive, victorious, triumphant, singing that the Lord Jesus Christ, our victor, has killed his tens of thousands. So when we've won the battle, 
It is Christ who has won it for us. God makes it very clear that his people will be strong enough to beat in pieces many peoples, that, that is many nations, the Gentile nations that were enemies of God's people, they will be beaten up by God's people who until now were the downtrodden, the, the, they, were, they were just daughters. And so God's people are told to not only beat the many peoples, but also to devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So, whatever trophies of war that you will capture, whatever crowns you may gain in this fight, where should we cast them? At his feet. At his feet we humbly fall and crown him Lord of all. Remember that Yahweh is the God, the Lord of the whole earth. He should have it all. He owns it all. He owns even that which is possessed by unbelievers and unchristians. He owns it all and you should thus work harder than the unbelievers and deliver the best there is to the kingdom of God. And so, we are to master our troops. So, chapter 5, verse 1, and we are going to deal with this in the next sermon, but the point is very clear here. Now, the exhortation, now master the troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the charge of Israel on the cheek. How do you tell people who are just about to be taken to exile to master their troops against a mighty army? It will take faith in their God, Yahweh, to do this. Sadly, they did not take it seriously and the result was that they went into exile. The now in this verse, just in the previous sections, marks that new section. And in this section, it signals, it signals a distress of Zion. And here there is a play of words between master your troops and daughter of troops, suggesting Zion or Judah's inability to build an army to defend herself. To strike a judge of Israel is a metaphor of humiliation for Israel's king now under siege. And what's the point? The point is, trusting in the arm of flesh, trusting in, in horses and chariots is going to always end in disaster. We must not say we've won that battle, we have the tact, we have the skill, we have the resources, therefore we do not need to pray. We do not need to, to depend upon the Lord. We must always learn to trust in the name of the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It is Yahweh who will keep us and not 
ourselves. So it's Yahweh, it's God, who will not let our feet be moved because our keeper does not sleep or slumber. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our shade on our right hand and the left hand. It is the Lord who will not let the sun strike us by the day nor moon by the night. It is the Lord who will keep us from evil. And so we should bow our knees before him. We should bring all peculiar honors to our king. We should pay homage to him knowing that he will establish us in his kingdom forever. So I ask you, what is it that you have withheld from the Lord your God? How willing are you to sing that song, take my life and let it be all and all there is in capitals, all consecrated Lord to thee? How much do we sing that song with meaning? Take my life and let it be all consecrated Lord to thee. When we sing that song, do we sing it with sincerity? Or it's just mouthing words. I urge you to be like David who, when offered the field of Arauna for free, he said, I shall not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Many of us are willing to render to the Lord that which cost us nothing. Let your service or gifts to the Lord be a sacrifice of praise to the one who loved you so much and gave his life for you. How much praise should you render to the one who loved you with eternal love and give you his life as a ransom for your redemption? How much should you love God who loved you and gave you his son to be your savior? How much? What really can you give to him? What, what can you render to God? It, it all belongs to him. Praise be to the Lord forever. The Lord wants you to live for his glory.